Good day, everyone. Welcome to Keep Calm and Carry On Investing. I am your host, Daniel Paris. My guest today is Martin Fridson. He is currently the publisher of the Income Securities Investor Newsletter. You should take a look at it. He is also Chief Investment Officer of Lehman Livian Fridson Advisors, an RIA based in New York that leans in the direction of income-oriented strategies. You should also take a look at it. He's also currently on the editorial boards of several financial journals. I would go over his prior history in the bond market, but it is simply too long and too illustrious. And that's precisely why I wanted to have him on the show today. The topic is interest rates, not so much where they're going in the next six minutes or the next six months, but where they've been over the past 40 years and how that has shaped the investment landscape and investor behavior. Marty, thank you so much for agreeing to be on the show. It's really a delight to be here. As we come to what appears to be the end of 40 years of declining interest rates, I really want to hear and think that investors will benefit from understanding what has happened over those 40 years. How has the landscape changed? What was investing like when rates were in the teens, products, customer behavior, et cetera? And then follow that trajectory up to the present when investors are are used to extremely low rates, income paucity, et cetera. So let's start at the beginning. It's 1976. Uh, you are a freshly minted Harvard MBA with long hair, not with long hair. We'll find out. <laughs> and you start as a utility bond trader. I don't know exactly where rates were then, but it looks to be around 7% for the 10-year at that point, rising to the mid-teens by 1981. What was it like analyzing bonds and over the next several years after that, being a fixed income strategist in, in that type of environment? Well, uh, I was uh, on the trading desk at that time. We were a relatively small player. Uh, I was involved in uh, corporate bonds, specifically electric utilities. And I learned an awful lot during that time that uh, held me in good stead when I moved over into credit analysis later on and eventually uh, worked as a strategist. Uh, they didn't make me the strategist the first day I walked in, as you can imagine. But the experience on the trading desk was uh, really excellent. Uh, as you say, the uh, treasuries were up around 7%. We actually um, focused more on the uh, American telephone and telegraph market. Uh, at that time, uh, it was one big company with subsidiaries in various parts of the country. Later on, uh, I believe in 1984, it was broken up into several pieces. But uh, we had the parent telephone company, as we called it. Uh, the issue was a 7.38% coupon that was the reference point for all the rest of the uh, corporate market, uh, including the electric utilities that I dealt in. So let's just stop there just for a quick second. So the benchmark was a corporate, not really a benchmark for corporates was a corporate, not necessarily a spread over the specific government bond. Yeah, uh, that really came in later. Uh, by the early 80s, I think people had switched over uh, to quoting everything off treasuries. I was originally opposed to it uh, because I felt that uh, you know the reference point within the corporate market was really more important, but it was a, uh, a tide that you couldn't hold back. Uh, the, the, the difference was that we didn't have the technology, believe it or not. We uh, didn't have a way to get uh, instantaneous, uh, you know, real-time quotes on where the treasury market was. We uh, and, and for that matter, we didn't know where the corporate market was, uh, the, like that telephone bond or other benchmark issues, unless we got a quote from the interdealer brokers. And I'll have more to say about them later on. But uh, 
this was all done by telephone and they would say the uh, parent, uh, which is AT&T holding company, which had all the operating subsidiaries in the various states, uh, the 738s were at such and such a yield. And then we would recalibrate whatever we had been trading to that change in the market. And you were recalibrating with what? Uh, a slide rule? I, and I mean uh, it all seriousness. Yeah. Yeah, no, uh, pretty much paper and pencil. Uh, there was a little bit of uh, computer technology around, but uh, I had my inventory on, uh, I guess, uh, four by six cards with uh, lines and right in the position. And if I traded part of it, I would subtract it. So very primitive by today's standards. Uh, uh, but uh, uh, yeah, we, it was, we had sort of a... Um, a framework in mind, uh, kind of a pricing matrix. And uh, we we didn't uh, have any credit analysis to back up what we were doing, even though we were trading corporate bonds. So if we uh, lost money two or three times, we figure, well, now the spread on that issue must have changed. Um, but, uh, you know, there were issues within my universe in the uh, electric utilities that were double A's, but traded better than other double A's and so on down the line. Um, what uh, really got me going, I, I was an understudy to our main electric utility trader, uh, uh, was, who was a brilliant guy, uh, really could make money, uh, had, had a great knack for uh, putting together the uh, round, uh, the odd lots that we traded, creating it, uh, a round lot, which in those days was just $100,000. Know, nowadays it's a million. Uh, but you could get a better price if you could amass the pieces into a, uh, a round lot. And he was just uh, brilliant uh, at it. Named, uh, his name was Hank Fay. And uh, I noticed that there were some, when a bid list would come in from one of the other dealers or from the interdealer brokers, there would be, in addition to the discount issues, and these were bonds um, trading with coupons as low as two and five eighths percent in a market where the new issues were coming at uh, 9% and plus. So some of these issues are trading in the 40s. These were not distressed bonds, but just because of the uh, the change. And just, in just for investors to understand, again, because interest rates are now so low and interest rates were high then, that meant a, a bond with a nominal value, let's say, of uh, a par value of $1,000 might, to get the interest rates right, with a 2% coupon could tra be trading at four or $500, and that would be the right price for that uh, for a 7% interest rate environment. Yeah, absolutely. And those, of course, uh, these electric utilities typically came with 30-year maturities, the telephones uh, as much as 40 years. So they had come to market in the pre-inflation era, and they were still around in trading. Uh, they were inter intermediate term bonds at that point, but um, uh, still deeply discounted with a number of years left to go to maturity. Well, I noticed that on these bid lists, there were some issues uh, trading at uh, large premiums to par, uh, maybe as much as 114. Uh, and we did we just passed on them. We didn't even put in bids because we had no idea. Well, I didn't have any idea either, but I said maybe we can make a little bit more money if we can buy some of those and retrade them at a profit. And um, uh, no one else seemed to have a very good idea of what they were worth either. So I was able to actually uh, buy some and uh, mark them up, uh, resell them, 
because you had a spread as a, a dealer. You, there was a bid side and an offered side. And I m- maybe didn't know exactly what the right levels were, uh, at least initially, but uh, kind of got the hang of it and was able to make some money. Well, uh, when rates then started to escalate uh, significantly, those bonds that had been at you know, 110 uh, were back to par and pretty soon they were at a discount. So a big part of my uh, potential market disappeared. Uh, so that, that was kind of a, a tough lesson uh, you know, to learn in the market in early days. Stayed. But it also raises an issue, which is kind of interesting. One, maybe I hadn't thought of, you know, not just a matter of very high rates puzzling people, but information efficiency was obviously much, much lower. There's, we're overwhelmed. I'm on the equity side. You're on the bond side. We're overwhelmed with data at this point. It, markets are, how shall we say, more efficient. They may not be efficient, but they are more efficient, clearly, than they were in the late 70s. Uh, you're, uh, I don't want to say you're flying blind, but you were flying a little bit blind. But that also is an opportunity as well that is distinctive element compared to the overwhelming amount of information that investors currently are faced with almost too much. Yeah. Our, our um, way of keeping things right was there was a lot of debate. And you, uh, if you went out after work, which I'll have to say happened fairly often, we ran up a good uh, uh, bar bill uh, in those days. And uh, a lot of the discussion was where such and such a bond was trading. And while I traded this bond at such and such a spread, such and such a yield, so you're you must be off your market on the other one. I uh, made the mistake of uh, bringing my then fiance along uh, a couple of years later to uh, uh, a get together that also involves some bond traders. And she uh, was kind of freaked out about this discussion of people just endlessly going on about the yields on the bonds they were trading. This was pretty much their whole life. <laughs> and, uh, uh, to anyone outside of that uh, sphere, I'm sure it did seem pretty strange. Did you did you end up uh, joining some of your wife's friends to discuss Haydn? I understand your wife is a scholar of music and Haydn in particular, I believe. So it, uh, hopefully she got uh, a little bit of revenge in taking you out to uh, to uh, go through Haydn. Oh, not not at all. It's been a great uh, benefit to my life to be married to uh, the, uh, uh, Elaine Sisman, is a professor at Columbia, a former president of the American Musicological Society, and um, I. Uh, knew a little bit about a classical music because we used to play some prescriptions or uh, transcriptions of classical pieces when I was in the high school band playing tuba. Um, but uh, that and a little bit, you know, hearing a little bit on the radio, uh, but my education in classical music went, uh, you know, far beyond anything I knew. Uh, and, and I did get to know some of her uh, colleagues, uh, you know, and many of them world famous uh, musicologists. So it was a tremendous uh, uh, piece of good luck for me. Well, congratulations on that. Back, back a little bit to, yeah. to an investment company. So in addition to the traders, I want to reach a little bit beyond the traders to the end investors or the institutions and what their expectations were or behavior was, not just traders, but also the end investors in a high inflation, high rate environment, discount rates really matter, present values are uh, you know uh, odd where you could have a $100 bond trading at $40. Uh, what were what were the investment strategies? Not maybe not the trading strategies, but the investment strategies that reasonable people undertook in a very high rate environment. Because that's where I think the contrast with the current day is going to be pretty significant. 
Yeah, well, th there was a real change of uh, the life insurance companies had really been the bulwark of the corporate bond market. And uh, they had a very simple business. You uh, write a policy that um, has a, a payout uh, at the time of death. You do an actuarial study, figure out what uh, rate uh, that policy is going to cost you, and then uh, take that money that uh, you are holding uh, uh, for the investor, uh, or the uh, policy owner, and invest it at a higher rate, earn a spread, and um, you do pretty well. That had worked for many, many years. But when uh, the, we went into the higher inflation, higher rate environment, a couple of things happened, um, one of which was that um, credits became much more volatile. I did a study uh, back in the 80s and found that there was an 18-year period where the 10 largest electric utility companies had no rating changes uh, because it was just a very stable environment. You know, that could never happen today. Uh, rate, ratings are much more volatile. Uh, you know, the trend has been somewhat you know, downward over time. Um, so that was a, uh, a shock to them. And interest rates became much more volatile because one of the effects of the rising inflation, even before we got to the late 70s, was the breakdown of the Bretton Woods Agreement, which had uh, maintained stable exchange rates and interest rates had been very stable up until that time in 1971 when we went off that system. And uh, so now there was a lot more volatility and um the other problem that the life insurance companies ran into was that one other feature, which no one had paid a lot of attention to, was uh, they offered policy loans. So as you built up a cash value in your policy, you could borrow that money um, at a rate that reflected uh, the rates that were prevailing in the 50s and up until maybe the early 1960s. But a lot of these policies, of course, were still outstanding. And all of a sudden, people could actually borrow on their life insurance policy, invested in the bond market, and they would be the one earning the spread. But this caused a huge outflow of cash for the life insurance companies. So they were really uh, facing some very serious problems. Um, some of the results uh, that came out of that uh, were uh, bond immunization became a very big uh, strategy. Uh, Salomon Brothers, where I worked uh, later on, uh, was uh, at the forefront of that uh, with some very smart people who devised strategies to implement. And, and what that meant was you could uh, devise a strategy where you would earn a, a predictable rate of return whether rates went up or down. And this was done with uh, uh, use of bonds, make, uh, 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 taking into account the reinvestment rate on the bonds and uh, some, uh, for the time, rather advanced bond math to work out those strategies and figure out how to match the maturities in a way that you could lock in the rate, even if the prevailing uh, yields on uh, uh, treasuries and corporate bonds went up or down uh, in the period. So uh, that became a very big part. So a much more sophisticated strategy than uh, traders or portfolio managers had been used to up to that time. And presumably that type of immunization now has been reversed for portfolios now where you don't want to lock in the very low rates. You want to at least be able to benefit from higher rates going forward. So that would also, I think, if I understand you correctly, count 
as a uh, as an example of a difference between now and then, if that's if I understood that correctly. <clears throat> yeah, well, that was always uh, you know even then you know there there was that uh, uh, you know issue because if you were locking in, you were foregoing the opportunity to benefit, as the case may be, from uh, the price gain or from the opportunity to reinvest at higher rates. You know, if if you were sure rates were going up, uh, is, <laughs> which is not anything you can be sure of, uh, but if that was your view, then you wanted to stay in very short-term bonds so that you would get your principal back and be able to reinvest it at the higher rates that you expected in the future. Uh, locking in the rates uh, limited you. Uh, you got a guaranteed return, but it precluded you from uh, taking advantage of a change in rates if you were able to call that direction in rates correctly. So you start in the mid-70s. Inflation is already a problem but it becomes worse. And then there, we have that famous time, very late 70s, early 80s, the very, very peak where it, I think even the math gets challenged at that point because a 7% 10 year is hard. You know, a, a 10 year in the mid-teens, is the math there is, is uh, whether it's on an index card, a slide rule, or even a computer, that's, that's really hard math and hard behavior. People are, you know, border, I don't know if they're panicking or not, but you know, the tremendous amount of, of uncertainty when you have inflation and rates running at that period. Are there any, you know, kind of stories that you would tell of, uh, of that are striking now that that period, we have the opposite problem now? Well, yeah, there, um, there, there were a lot of colorful characters. I guess there probably still are on the street. But uh, one that I particularly remember was a fellow by the name of uh, Francis X. Callahan, Frank Callahan, who was a founding partner of uh, one of these interdealer bond brokers, called Callahan and Kaufman. And um, he had two grown sons working in the business with him. So he was you know, getting on in years at that point. Um, but he told me that his success as a bond broker uh, all came down to the fact that um, starting in uh, probably around the end of World War II, uh, he had uh, never been afraid to short bonds. He was always bearish throughout his entire career, and he was right. Uh, rates only went up, and uh, you know by the the late seventies, of course, they had gone to uh, you know uh, un unprecedented and levels that people never would have imagined that they could. And um, uh, so that that was the environment. You know, being being continuously bearish was a very successful strategy uh, through that whole period. Uh, you know, that, uh, of course, as you say, has reversed and, um, you know, wouldn't have been a successful strategy in the period going forward. And I'm sure a lot of people went through a difficult adjustment period um, going to that environment where things were moving in the other, opposite direction from what they had been in all of their careers, whether they started in 1945 or, you know, 55, 65 or 75. Uh, it was uh, genuinely a sea change. So, but in addition to shorting bonds in a historical period, but if you have interest rates of fifteen percent, people are inflation, very concerned about inflation, double digit. What you know are the institutions panicking, or individual investors that you're dealing with uh, that you may not have direct access to, but you can kind of feel through their their investments, uh, trying to just get out of the bond market, trying to uh, you know a very smart strategy would have been to buy a lot of bonds in 1981, but very few people would have had the the uh, the nerve to do so. Uh, what what were the various strategies that were being 
deployed at the at the peak, and again, shorting a lot in 1981 would have failed, but there must have been people going the other, a few, handful of people going the other direction or just saying, I'm going into gold or or not. What did you encounter those types of choices? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, despair was a big part of the strategy, but uh, there were um, uh, pundits taken very seriously, written up in the financial magazines, who were um, saying, buy canned goods. Uh, I mean, these were uh, the survivalists and, um, you know, they they weren't laughed at necessarily. I mean, some, you know, there were uh, others who you know, didn't. Uh, go along with that strategy, but they, uh, you know, the idea of just filling your uh, pantry with uh, canned goods uh, because inflation was there, uh, you could see it very clearly. Um, if you went into a diner, they had a uh, uh, clearly very temporary menu because they were going to have to mark up their prices. So they weren't going to go and buy expensive printed menus that they would have to replace uh, literally in in a, a month or two. Um, I. Uh, I'll tell you a little story about myself. I, in 1981, uh, excuse me, 1980, the beginning of 1980, I moved to Payne Weber as an analyst. And uh, now uh, that was the result of uh, some very unusual circumstances. Payne Weber had a hiring freeze as a result of an uh, unfortunate uh, way a, a merger had uh, worked out. And um, uh, then they had six credit analysts leave uh, for another shop. And with a hiring freeze, the best they could do was to hire one person, namely me, to replace them and follow 135 credits with no qualifications for the job. And um, the uh, so in the interview, uh, I, I interviewed with a guy by the name of Russ Fraser, who headed that credit research department. He had formerly been the head of industrial bond ratings at Standard & Poor's, uh, knew his stuff really well. Unfortunately, he had a very good system worked out uh, that enabled me to uh, learn uh, on, on the job very quickly. But the, the point of the story really is that uh, when he was hiring me, uh, you have to understand he was throwing me a lifeline. I mean, the, the firm that I was working at was uh, going quickly down the tubes and uh, I, my, my alternative was, uh, even if I didn't fully appreciate it, the time was being out of work. So here was my chance to move. And I actually held out for a 10% raise from what I had been making because that was the, the rate that the cost of living was going up. And I really took very seriously. I mean, I wasn't making a huge amount of money and uh, it was important to me to be able to at least uh, stay even. Um, but, but looking back on it, this was crazy. Uh, you know, to be holding out, but he, he actually went for it, <laughs> you know, th thank goodness. And, um, you know, I got the job, but that was kind of the, uh, the mentality uh, we were in. Do you remember your rent at that time? <clears throat> um, I was paying about $200 a month. Uh, I, th I got raised to 225 and I was uh, very upset about it. But, uh, you, know, you know, that's what we, we were doing. I mean, I uh, used to go to the um, grocery store and uh, come back with change from a $20 bill. Now, I admitted I was a little bit extreme in that. I wasn't spending a lot and I, I, was, I was eating a lot of meals out at diners and things like that. But, uh, uh, you know, it, it was, um, you know, it, it, uh, an amazing time. I, I, I tell you about the rate uh, rises. Uh, when uh, my wife and I uh, did get engaged, we um, 
bought an apartment. She was living in uh, Ann Arbor, Michigan, teaching at the university there at the time. But we uh, pooled all of our life savings and um, didn't quite qualify at the uh, what was then the Harlem Savings Bank uh, to uh, buy an apartment and uh, is now the Apple Bank for Savings. Um, but we um, or actually, I think they had changed the name to the Central Savings Bank. Uh, by that time, they went through several name changes. But anyhow, we pulled all our life savings, didn't quite qualify, but the uh, uh, lending officer, a fellow by the name of John Madrovsky, uh, you can understand why I remember the name, um, bent the rules a little bit and said, I'm going to approve you for this loan. And uh, they gave us an option where we could lock in a 14.5% uh, rate on this mortgage. This is a cooperative, similar to a condominium apartment in New York City. or we could uh, uh, we could let it ride and take the rate that would be prevailing. Uh, in, I think it was a month or two later. But you know, by the time the um, uh, you know the the, uh, the we got to the closing on the purchase of the apartment. So I went and spoke with our uh, uh, chief economist, <clears throat> uh, where I was at the time, and he said, "Oh, rates are going down. Absolutely, just." You know, let it ride, get the lower rate that'll be available. I think it was three months until the closing. And uh, I, I went home and I thought about it and I said, you know, th things are kind of tight here. Uh, uh, yeah, I don't like paying 14.5% for a mortgage, but uh, I, I think we're going to lock in the rate. And sure enough, by the time we closed, the uh, rates that they were offering were 16%. Um, so yeah, very hard for anyone listening to this who wasn't around at the time to imagine an environment like that. And I certainly hope we don't go back to it, but uh, you know, that's, uh, that's the kind of uh, the way things were. One, one important part of that story is that what, there was a loan officer whom you dealt with, a person, yeah. Yeah. and a person made the decision, a person you had access to. Those days are also uh, long gone. Yeah. <laughs> I, so, you know, when we look back now, everyone looks back to 81 and, and, and Paul Volcker, and it's the great turn and it leads to this 40-year shift. At the time, nobody could have known that. What was it like, not at the top or on the way up, but was there any sense that this crisis is now moving in the other direction? Your, your colleague uh, suggested rates were going down, but they, he was wrong because he didn't get the, the top right. But in retrospect, 1981, 1980, 1981, 1982 are, are these, this turning point in history. But you couldn't have known that. How, how did it, how did, when did you realize it was a turning point in history, that rates were now coming down? In, 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 in retrospect, everyone gives credit to Paul Volcker, very tall fellow, very forceful fellow, mm -hmm. uh, but he was, you know, just another central banker at that time. And uh, again, it would have been hard to know that he was going to make the difference. Yeah, well, it, uh, it certainly um, sounded different. I mean, the, the um, Rhetoric uh, coming out of the uh, uh, the Fed was different. He was uh, talking tough, um, and he had had the backing of uh, the president. Uh, Reagan, uh, to his credit, was not trying to um, uh, interfere. Uh, I think he uh, wanted to see inflation come down, and he uh, stood back. Uh, so that was a very positive thing. So you know, I think it started to uh, create some confidence. <clears throat> but of course, you had the inflationary mentality. Uh, I think that took uh, quite a while 
to uh, change and have people start to think, well, um, yeah, we, we're, you know, we've turned the corner um, and, uh, you know, and, that, and that's, um, uh, you know, and, and it had been the same on the way up. You know, it, it took a while for uh, people really to get used to the idea and start to think uh, prices are going higher, so I'd better buy things now rather than wait. And that only fueled the inflation further. Um, but uh, I can tell you this, um, you know, Henry Kaufman, who was the chief economist at Solomon Brothers, which was the premier firm, I take the credit for having uh, been there from 1981 to 84 during their greatest years. I, I say that jokingly, of course, but uh, uh, they they were uh, clearly the, uh, the leading firm in the bond market in those days, and he was the chief economist. So <clears throat> when he um, came out in uh, April of 1982, as described in a book that was just published last month, uh, commemorating that, uh, the market had clearly not uh, concluded that we had turned because he had remained bullish, even though, as he says, you know, if it just credit says very clearly in the book that the turning point really had come in October of 1981. But, you know, the evidence that that hadn't really been uh, accepted was that when he came out with that statement in April of 1982, that he had changed his view. He believed that rates were now headed down. Uh, the stock market had its biggest rally ever on a single day up to that point. In percentage terms um, or in absolute terms. Both. Uh, well, I think it was both at, at that time, you know, and, and, um, we know we've had bigger uh, one-day moves since then, but you know it was the biggest up to that day. So I think it's it's pretty clearly uh, the case that uh, even though uh, you know rates had come down a fair amount from uh, the October eighty-one peak, um, uh, you know I think just as we saw in the uh, COVID uh, event, you know after the um, low point in all the markets really on uh, March 23rd, 2020, uh, there was uh, for quite a while a discussion about a second uh, downswing. Um, it was, you know, not uh, not a crazy talk. Uh, and despite, you know, the Fed ha having made a pretty strong statement at that point. But I think that you have a lot of people looking at the market in technical terms and, um, uh, you know, you talk about uh, profit taking and so on. And um, so, uh, it, you know, it, I think very similarly, um, you know, the market wasn't uh, entirely convinced even after seeing several months of rates coming down. And, and they came down pretty sharply. And then we start this 40 year uh, decline. And it, it's interesting because there have been lots of head fakes during um, the last 40 years where rates stop going down and move up for about a year. Uh, plus or minus depends. It's kind of a zigzag down. And the temptation for certain people would say, and has been, I, I've only been a participant in the market for the last 20 years. I, I work on dividend equities, as, as uh, uh, listeners will know, and they are perceived to be, whether they are or not, but they're perceived to be very sensitive to interest rate changes. So I've, I've been listening to rates are going up for the last 20 years, not 40 years, but 20 years. And you get that comment when rates temporarily stopped going down over the past 20 years and, and they move up a bit, but but it doesn't last. So 
as rates came down over the 40-year period, how did, how did you perceive both uh, trading strategies at your job, as it were, but also investment strategies from the clients change? How long did it take for them to realize, okay, we we're, we're have to plan for a declining rate strategy, not, not a rising rate strategy? And uh, uh, whether it's mortgages and consumer behavior and uh, restaurant menus or uh, insurance companies uh, changing their their uh, strategy to adapt adapt to this uh, new uh, trend. Well, um, I think that uh, you know you started to hear somewhat less about immunization um, and you know the the focus on uh, you know protecting against policy loans and all uh, uh, those kind of things that had come in during the seventies. Uh, you know were not emphasized as much, but I think that um, as you say, there were uh, pullbacks in the market, and I think that investors continue to be very concerned about the volatility. And uh, I don't, you know, I, I, you know, you did, you do have some, uh, and you know, and some uh, pundits who had a very successful period because they uh, got on the train of rates coming down. They did. A uh, you know macroeconomic analysis that led them to believe that was the direction things were going, and they stuck to their guns even in the pullbacks, and um, uh, you know did very well during that. Uh, you also had uh, you know bears who looked at developments that were coming along, and I think at any point you could find reasons to be bearish. Uh, to uh, see the possibility of inflation rising again. You know, you didn't really see balanced budgets uh, through that period up until uh, the Clinton administration. People actually got scared when the budget balanced. They said, how will we uh, be able to price bonds if we don't have uh, the Treasury coming and borrowing money and creating benchmarks uh, that will uh, you know, tell us where, and, and they and they really worried about the sh uh, a shortage of supply. You know, if you got surpluses, then the government would start paying down the debt, and there wouldn't be any treasuries to buy, and then you'd have to, you know, go to uh, uh, you know high grade uh, corporate bonds. Back to AT and T. Back to yeah, AT and T. Yeah, they, yeah, they were talking about that. That yeah, that you'd be back to triple uh, A corporates, and there were a diminishing supply of those. Uh, so I think. Um, well, you, you you saw a few. I don't know how many institutional buyers really just said, you know, in in October of eighty one or April of eighty two. Well, it's smooth sailing here. <laughs> Let's just make a bet on long term bonds and uh, ride with it. And don't worry if we have a a year when it backs up and a performance is bad. We're just going to stick with it. I I think that um, the uh, the technology continued to develop to deal with the, uh, you know, the volatility. And of course, interest rate uh, futures uh, really developed tremendously in that period. You know, if you go back to the rising rate environment, we, you know, dealers didn't have interest rate futures to hedge with. They were taking the uh, risk of, uh, uh, a, of a, um, a corporate bond underwriting. They were taking all the interest rate risk and sometimes got hurt very badly when between the time when they took down the bonds and got them all distributed, which isn't a very long period, but they suddenly got hit by a 
uh, uh, steep rise in interest rates during that time and uh, uh, wound up being very costly to them. So at certain points during the 40-year ride, as you said, kind of bond bears would say, this is the top of the market. The interest rates have gone from 15% back to 7%, and then it's 6% and 5%. And you begin to get to low single-digit numbers where uh, a reasonable macroeconomic macroeconomist or uh, uh, macro market person would say, well, you know, the treasury rate is, you know, the risk-free rate really ought to be with inflation expectations and a, a modicum of risk really ought to be two or three or 4%. And so that the temptation to call that bottom would have been, or the top of the bond market, bottom of the yields would have been, uh, I, I think, fairly frequent every couple of years uh, that would have happened and would have led to changes by, again, by the institutional investors or the insurance companies and even retail investors. And yet it, it just, and as I said, I've been exposed to that because I've been told over the past 20 years, almost, I'm not gonna say every day, but pretty much every week, you're going to get killed when rates go up. And during the 20-year period, interest rates have only gone in one direction, which is down. So I, maybe that's, you know, uh, I'm reflecting my own position in the market. But the con- it, what has been striking about so long of a trend is the expectation that it must end, sh- uh, must end soon. And yet it has not. I don't know if being in the bond market, you've had that same experience. But uh, I, yeah. I, on the equity side, I certainly have. Yeah, I did. And, you know, I, I've i worked uh, particularly in the high yield bond market. Um, if you read the financial press, they'll call them junk bonds uh, because that's a shorter term and fits into the headlines more easily. But uh, I've been hearing ever since um, the yield on the index of high yield bonds dropped into single digits, you know, it was from 10% to 9.99. I've been hearing the same joke oh, you can't call them high yield bonds anymore. Now they're low yield bonds. <laughs> you know, now they're at four. Um, so uh, yeah, and, and people have absolutely said all along, boy, you're really going to be sorry when they go back up to five, <laughs> when they go back up to six, when they go back up to seven, wherever uh, they were at the time. Um, and a big uh, important part of that, I think particularly we saw in the cycle from uh, 2008, uh, and afterwards was that uh, surprisingly, and I have to say I was surprised myself. I was on a um, uh, radio program with uh, Abby Joseph Cohen of Goldman Sachs, who happens to be a, uh, a friend of my wife's. They grew up uh, together, were sorority sisters later on. Um, and we were on the program together and talking about the quantitative easing where the Fed <clears throat> was going into the market, which they had not done since 1951, and buying long-term bonds, you know, between 51 and, uh, you know, 2008, uh, they had operated exclusively in the short-term bond market or short-term uh, interest rate market. And when that happened, uh, I said, well, you know, they're really monetizing the debt. You know, they're, they're buying the increased issuance of treasuries, which had come about to uh, also as a stimulus package. I said, I don't see any way that will escape a pickup in inflation and rising rates. Uh, Abby uh, was much more optimistic, um, and she turned out to be right on that. We did not see inflation pick up, and the explanation of that is that the inflation rate is a function not only of how much credit is created in the system, but how frequently those dollars turn over, you know, otherwise known as the velocity of money. And if you look at a graph of velocity, it just fell off a cliff. 
And it's uh, been there for 13 years at the bottom of the ravine. I, I spend a lot of time looking at velocity as well. And it just hasn't picked up for all the money that's being pumped into the system. Uh, so that head fake didn't happen. That is where the head fake happened, but it didn't. Uh, you know, the expectations that rates would rise out of the financial crisis, as they do naturally out of any crisis. And yet it didn't happen significantly. And if anything, you know, uh, the, the velocity of money remained very low. GDP did not really recover anywhere near to the extent given the amount of stimulus that was created. And then we, we replayed the whole thing in the last, uh, you know, year and a half again. Uh, yet it does appear finally who knows, after 40 years, it's a round number, after 40 years uh, with extraordinary circumstances that no one could have imagined, that we may possibly, who knows, be at the bottom. And I, I, is that your view or are you, you know, so now now putting you on the spot as we sort of come to the denouement here, your your view of is the 40-year trend over or is it is it actually, could it continue? Yeah, I, well, I would say, and uh, yeah, I may regret this, you know, looking back a few years from now, I'd be surprised to see rates going any lower from, or at least lower than the, you know, the low point in treasuries that we've seen. Um, I think the jury is still out on whether the inflation that we're seeing right as we speak, we've just seen uh, a big jump in uh, the consumer price index, you know, larger than we've seen in in, uh, in quite a while. Um, the jury is still out on whether that is a temporary uh, rise, um, partly related to a low base period uh, when we were at near the bottom of the uh, uh, recession 12 months ago, or whether you really will see a more permanent escalation in, in uh, inflation. And that inflation mentality is going to be an important factor there. I don't think that's really set in in a major way yet. There, you know, there are some shortages right now, uh, and people have uh, been hoarding a little bit. Uh, we've seen some materials prices, uh, particularly lumber, uh, but more recently copper has gotten into the spotlight. Um, and the question is, is that a function of this, you know, uh, rapid recovery and uh, in in the economy uh, creating some supply line uh, disruption, uh, or are we really going to see a more uh, secular rising inflation rate? I think it's uh, too early to come to a definitive uh, conclusion on that. Although you have some brave souls out there who are taking a stand one way or another, and half of them are going to look like geniuses uh, a year from now. We won't hold you to that, but I, I do want to, you know, kind of contrast this period now as a as a bond manager, as an investor, uh, with forty years ago. Now that interest rates, with the exception of the last few months, as it were, are ultra ultra low in the United States. Now, are there anything anything that stands out in terms of investor behavior, whether it's the insurance companies who've really struggled with their their you know uh, the asset side uh, of their uh, balance sheets as rates got lower and lower. Uh, you know, in, in the mortgage, the diner menu also, uh, they could now print uh, in stone because for years prices have been stable or in, in effect disinflationary, if not actually deflationary, that strike you when you contrast investor behavior over the last few years of ultra low rates with uh, investor behavior uh, when you started in the business? Yeah, um, <clears throat> I think that uh, the uh, you know, there, there has been a lot of innovation and investors have made much more use of that. 
you know, the, you know, the, the whole idea of hedging, when we talked about hedging at the time I started in the business, I would say, well, as a dealer, we would have a long inventory and a short inventory. So we did um, hedge and, and try to make money on the spread, uh, finding good bonds to purchase, getting off good sales and so on, and uh, uh, sort of insulating ourselves from the fluctuations of the market as much as we could by having both a long and a short inventory. Uh, most of the investors at that point, hedge funds were not really a factor in the market at that point. Uh, they were active in the equity market already, although they became much bigger later on. But um, other investors uh, really didn't think about hedging. They um, took um, as a given that over time you would make money, you know, not because bond prices would rise, but you had a positive rate of return. Uh, you would earn more than the inflation rate, and um, that would take care of you. Uh, so, so the real change, which I don't think will uh, change except in the particulars of uh, what they implement, is that uh, the hedging, which is now possible with interest rate futures, with um, instruments, uh, credit default swaps, they're, uh, they're pretty much everything you can hedge. And these were they, uh, 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 the professor that I had uh, by a miracle, I uh, had teach a section um, and then I noticed that the name Kenneth Arrow was in the textbook. A couple of years later, he won the Nobel Prize in economics. Uh, what, what an opportunity that was to have him as my section man uh, for the introductory economics course. Well, he uh, had, had developed a concept of the missing markets. They're saying, well, you can't buy an insurance company, uh, insurance policy at that point on various aspects of the financial markets. But over time, people did fill in those missing markets. And that's the real change from when I started in the business. And again, I think people will now be uh, more concerned about longer term trends. Uh, the ability to insure over uh, very long periods uh, is still uh, not that easy and you know, it's certainly not cheap to do. Um, but I think there will be more financial innovation as uh, we see the change in the direction because the financial innovation inter, uh, innovation has been geared toward a period of a long-term period of dro dropping rates. So your, your uh, index cards have been replaced by a lot of financial tools that have uh, absorbed or neutralized a lot of the opportunities that may have existed in 19, 1976 and, and uh, don't really in the current environment. Is that a way to summarize that? Yeah, I would say that, uh, yeah, the, uh, uh, I, I don't think traders necessarily know how to use a pen and paper these days. They probably, the younger ones probably didn't learn that in school because they were working with tablets <laughs> at this time. But um, uh, yeah, the, uh, you know, the, the environment, uh, uh, the technology has been uh, the, the biggest change. And that, that gives me some confidence that the institutions will be able to find their way uh, through it. Their biggest uh, handicap will be uh, having grown up in a different market, and that's that's a pretty difficult thing. I think Frank Callahan was lucky to probably be able to retire uh, not too long after the period I was talking to. But those who were in mid-career, uh, particularly with the greater volatility in the uh, uh, credits uh, and 
corporate bond ratings, that was a very difficult transition for those who'd grown up in that much more stable period. Well, uh, as Frank Callahan was able to retire in a timely fashion, any words of wisdom for the next 40 years? And we have the beauty both neither you nor I will be held accountable for uh, what the world is like in 40 years, at least from a bond market perspective or equity market perspective. And any uh, anyone send off our, our listeners with uh, thoughts of, uh, uh, about the future, not so much what the 10 years is going to be like in, in six months, but you know, uh, what you would have, based on your experience of having seen this mega cycle, what you would have younger investors think about over the next 10, 20, 30 years uh, about rates of risk, bond rates directly, and so forth, discounting factors. Yeah, I would say that uh, the thing to keep in mind is uh, you have to take a long-term view. It's very easy to uh, perceive a change that's been very recent, even though it's been a violent move in the market, but to take that as a sign that we've uh, gone into a a secular uh, change that will turn out to be uh, very transient and to make uh, radical changes in the portfolio in response to that is what really uh, harms people's returns. You know, I mentioned just briefly the concept of reinvestment risk, but uh, in fact, uh, rising rates are not the end of the world. Uh, when you look at the impact of your returns over a period uh, beyond, you know, about seven years or so, uh, from based on current levels, the interest rate risk is really the dominant factor. So if you're reinvesting at a higher rate, you actually wind up doing fine. So uh, I would say the way to avoid that uh, excessively short-term perspective is to be uh, conscious of history. It's very worthwhile looking at financial history. You learn a lot from it. When I uh, came over to Salomon Brothers as an analyst, there was uh, the guy I was reporting to was uh, about a and maybe a dozen years older than I was, but I, I was so in, envious because I said, here was a guy who had so much more history in the market that I did, but it was really true. I mean, even, even a few years more can make a difference. So getting uh, any kind of perspective on the market, and um, uh, it's, by the way, much easier to learn about financial history. You used to have to go to the trouble of getting to a library. Some people are asking, what's a library? <laughs> that. Uh, now, on the Internet, so much has been digitized. Uh, you can learn about that history uh, right at your fingertips. And I would encourage you to do that. Well, with that, uh, we'll wrap this up with the phrase which I like to use all the time, which is history matters. My guest has been Martin Fridson. He is the publisher of the Income Securities Investor Newsletter. And he is also the chief investment officer, at Lehman Livian uh, Fridson Advisors and RIA based in New York. Marty, thank you so much for being on the show. It's really been a pleasure. Thank you.